Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Consequence Podcast Network. Welcome to Discography. I'm your host, Mark with a C. Discography is a show in which I wade through the entirety of an artist's canon releases to see how it all stacks up. And to kick off, I've chosen one of the seemingly hardest to penetrate artists in the history of music, Frank Zappa. Discography exists to inform and educate listeners who really want to know. Now, here's the part where I should probably tell you a little bit about Frank Zappa and why you should be interested in his discography. Well, I've racked my brain, but there's simply no right way to do this. Frank will either alienate you or he won't. There's the rumor that he ate human feces on stage, but that never happened. Though Frank understood the importance of a good urban legend. Some folks will tell you that they prefer his first band, The Mothers of Invention. And when it comes to their first album, Freak Out, sure, that was a band, with Frank being the director and leader. But after 1966 or so, the Mothers rarely kept a consistent lineup. Frank was the sole composer for the band, and the lineup consisted of pretty much whoever happened to be in the room at the time. There's often very little difference between albums attributed to Frank Zappa or Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. Eventually, it was realized that he'd sometimes sell more records when he used that mother's moniker, and that explains its occasional reemergence. Each member was important in their own way, but if you took Frank away, they wouldn't have had any music to play. No matter how much I tell you about Frank autobiographically, it almost doesn't matter. Once he got going on his quest to document everything that life had to offer, very little didn't inform his big song. Yes, his big song. I'll get to that in a minute, but this means that his birth in 1941 in Maryland, his first marriage, his children with the wacky names, these all might have mattered to Frank, the guy, but they also informed Frank, the artist. Whatever you really needed to know about him was in the song. Nothing was sacred or off-limits. He lived to compose. Composition could mean just stringing pretty dots together to see what they'd sound like later, or it could mean making secret tape recordings of his backing band. I mean, if they're in the band, then any sound they create is part of that band, right? Sure, he fought the PMRC, and he worked tirelessly to keep his audience informed and registered to vote. He even helped cool Soviet and U.S. relations during the Cold War just to help his records get further distribution. And all of those things are interesting, but yet only the important parts would be chronicled in his big song. Important to Frank, that is. 
With so much time spent composing and recording, his life truly was the song and vice versa. Now, I have to warn you, Frank as an American composer and musical anthropologist pulls no punches. At some point, he will offend you. Heck, at one point, I was about to jump off the train myself. But as a huge proponent for free speech, Frank himself might balk at the fact that I'm even giving a content warning in 2018. His feeling was that there was no combination of words that would actively hurt your life. But he also passed away before the advent of Tumblr. So why me? Why Mark with a C? Why am I doing this? Well, I don't remember when I first heard about Frank Zappa. It's like he's always been there, but it took me years to figure out how to fit him into my life. I, like many others, came at his art sort of sideways, and I didn't know what to make of him. Zappa is most often correctly referred to as composer. And yes, he certainly was that thing, but closer inspection reveals that he was so much more. A statement which seems yawn-inducing until you really dive in and swim around. It's been said that you can know his entire catalog backwards and forwards and still have no real feel for the man himself. I disagree. He might be one of the rare cases where his art did define him, at least for a period of his life. To write, record, and carry on in an all-day, everyday fashion, you don't really have much time for life that doesn't end up being represented in your art in some way. There were some Frank Zappa albums in my house when I was younger, but they were a bit oddball even for Frank. We had cassettes of Sleep Dirt and Orchestral Favorites, and the three LP record set of guitar solos known as Shut Up and Play Your Guitar. None of those had vocals. Heck, none of those even had rhythms that I could relate to under the age of 10. I'd play them, try to understand them, and eventually give up. The album stunk of bong water, and that's what my takeaway was. Listen to this guy when you eventually partake of the funny-smelling cigarettes that my dad likes, and this'll all make sense. That's another myth about Frank Zappa. He never really dabbled in drugs or alcohol. Don't know how he got that image. Anyways, around this time in my life, I heard the tail end of a radio special about him, probably around 1986, and I heard bits and pieces of songs that had vocals, a really deep voice, and strange lyrics about dental floss. I was intrigued, and I wondered why we didn't own any of those things. The next things I'd run into was a cassette of Joe's Garage Act 1 at a thrift store. It was less than a buck, so I took a chance, and I was hooked from the moment I shoved it right in my Walkman and sat enthralled until the soulful strains of Lucille has messed my mind up had faded away, and that hunt was on. I had to understand this guy. I tried some compilations that were released after he passed away, namely Strictly Commercial and Have I Offended Someone? And while I enjoyed them greatly, they didn't seem to paint a complete picture either. I'd pick up CDs when I could, but I'd notice that they all sounded crummy in comparison to the tapes that I originally had, so I decided to stick to the original vinyl when I could. I made this decision before there was much of a vinyl resurgence, and titles on wax were a bit less expensive and easier to find in junk shops then. They'd be beat up, but they'd still sound better than the compressed, artificial muck of some of those Ryko Disc titles. Fast forward to early 2016. I had a pretty heroic amount of Zappa music on wax, but as he'd made some titles specifically for the digital market, I knew I still couldn't really be getting Frank. 
Not with all of that conceptual continuity and recurring themes, both lyrical and musical, that ran through the hundreds, yes, hundreds of releases. I didn't find deep emotional resonance in a lot of the music either. It felt more like a puzzle to be put together, only truly approachable upon completion, but also with the journey being more rewarding than the goal, at least in hindsight. Frank had said that if you were to listen to all of his released works from end to end, they'd basically be one big song. Bits could recur, but it'd be more like a refrain from one huge composition. Trying to understand that big, big song was just too enticing of a task for this record geek to ignore, especially when I couldn't find published literature by anyone else who tried to chronicle such an undertaking. It was a million times more intriguing than, I don't know, the flaming lips sticking together a 24-hour noise jam, slapping it onto a USB drive and hiding it in a six-foot gummy pickle. This guy set out to write a song that took nearly 40 years to complete, and I wanted to hear it. When it was reported that the Zappa Family Trust had reissued most of his catalog on CDs that had quote-unquote gotten it right by 2016, even going as far as to number the releases in a suggested listening order that was relatively chronological, I saw my way into doing this. I auditioned a CD of the album You Are What You Is, which is my favorite Frank record on most days, and my mind was blown. They hadn't just gotten it right, but certain bits actually blew my vinyl copy right out of the water. It wasn't even a contest. So I decided to embark on this personal pilgrimage through Frank Zappa's catalog. I'd pick up up to two discs per week. They'd be my listening material in my driving times unless I needed to pay attention to a GPS or something. I'd be able to walk into the world of Frank Zappa with an advantage, knowing a bit about where I was headed, but being unable to wander through knowing where the supposed peaks and valleys really were. I wasn't flying blind, with his catalog being so incredibly varied, though, there was less of a chance of getting burnt out on his sound. It was time to really get Zappa. It was time to really get Zappa's big song. You're coming with me. Let's see where we end up. This is discography. Mr. America, walk on by your schools that do not teach. Mr. America, walk on by the minds that won't be reached. Mr. America, try to hide the emptiness that's you inside. But once you find that the way you lied and all the corny tricks you tried will not forestall the rising tide of hungry freaks, Daddy. Week one, ZFT number one, Freak Out by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. It wasn't until I played this fabulous-sounding disc a few times that I'd learned that this was not the original mix, actually, but rather a 1987 mix assembled by Frank himself. And this would explain why I was blown away by the Sonics as soon as Hungry Freak's Daddy kicked in. I felt like I was really hearing this classic for the first time, and in a way I was. There was better separation than my worn-out Verve LP, and I immediately felt like I was on the right path with this decision to traverse the waters. 
Now, some folks will talk your ear off about how Frank was never better than when he was with his band, The Mothers of Invention, and how they might have even peaked with their debut, Freak Out. I don't agree. The Mothers were a very good and really cool band, and if this was the only thing they'd ever done, they'd still be revered, we'd still talk about them, sure, but what you ultimately have is some pretty tame rhythm and blues with some occasional subversion that descends into utter chaos. And references suicide quite often. I just don't care no more Because I'm not satisfied Everything I've tried I don't like the way Life has been abusing me But when I say the word tame, I mean tame by today's standards. This was a rhythm and blues band that was using kazoos and xylophones and... It was a double record that descended into chaos as soon as the freaks that are constantly alluded to in the lyrics take over. But here's the prerequisite part where I remind you that Frank wasn't into drugs or alcohol. When he celebrates freaks, he's talking about those that naturally fall outside the lines of societal norms. They don't need chemical alteration. They're just who they are unapologetically. He wants to set your inner freak free, even if it lives in Kansas. And the best way for Frank to do that? Sound perfectly normal. Have easily digestible songs like How Could I Be Such a Fool and anti-love songs with I Ain't Got No Heart. Get on to teenage turntables with the strains of Wowie Zowie and remind you that only his band understands you in tracks like Motherly Love. Frank knew exactly what he was doing, and this album is the perfect debut in that regard. Nature's been good to this here band. Don't ever think we're shy. Send us up some little groupies, and we'll take their hands and rock them till they swill and cry. What you need is motherly love. Get it now. And as you let the double-length album play on, you get into some much weirder territory. The aforementioned suicide and I'm not satisfied. Racial unrest in the churning classic Trouble Every Day. Until the freaks take over, the album completely on the closing, Return of the Son of Monster Magnet. this might be the most palatable Zappa record on the books. I wouldn't say that if you don't get it, you won't get Zappa. I mean, everyone has different tastes, but I would intimate that this is probably the one that anyone has a chance of walking into and grooving to. It sounds exactly like a forward-thinking band should have in 1966. 
and he kicks off the big song with a bang. And it may just be part of a big song, but I'm gonna stick it in the masterpiece pile, because taken out of context, it's just a great rock and roll record. Hey, you know something, people? I'm not black, but there's a whole lot of times I wish I could say I'm not white. ZFT CD number two, absolutely free. defend an unpopular policy every once in a while. I was a bit apprehensive about jumping into this title because even my original Verve LP sounded really murky and overall I felt the album was maybe a bit of a rush job, a mishmash, and a slight letdown after the hand-holding of the debut. Relative hand-holding, of course. To my delight, I found that I was only half right. This new CD version was about the best that this record could probably sound, considering that it was indeed a rush job. In the past, I'd rarely found myself in the mood for Absolutely Free, so hearing it in this formation was somewhat close to experiencing it with virgin ears. It kicks off with a message from the President of the United States where he hums a bit of Louie Louie and he tells the world that they are fake and plastic. The hey, let's be freaks of the debut had turned into, and here's what's wrong with the rest of you, really quickly. A bit more snide, way more chaotic. It was as if these initially tightly arranged compositions were being performed by the chaotic folks of Monster Magnet, from where the previous album ended. myself best able to enjoy the album when not keeping an eye on the track listing. Just because the song title had changed didn't actually mean it was a different piece. Colony Vegetable, Invocation and Ritual Dance of the Young Pumpkin, and Soft Cell Conclusion might appear to be wholly different songs on the label, but they just aren't. Side One is one big piece about plastic people with the brain power of produce. If there's ever been an album that should just be Side One and Side Two, this is it. A prune isn't really a vegetable. Of course, the original album sides are broken up on the ZFT disc by a single from around this time, containing Big Leg Emma and Why Don't You Do Me Right, dumb teenage tunes intended to lure dumb teenagers into hearing the sounds of the mothers. It shouldn't work on the album, but after the commentary in the first suite, it works astoundingly well. The songs are also a bit more bare in production than the songs that precede them, so it also helps to have a bit of a change in pace. There's a big dilemma about my big leg Emma. Uh-huh. Oh yeah. There's a big dilemma about my big leg Emma. Uh-huh. Side 2 was a little less welcoming for me. The song Brown Shoes Don't Make It is often name-checked as one of Frank's most indispensable compositions, but I just don't get the same excitement from it that everyone else seems to. Which school? Why make it? Brown shoes don't make it. 
too weird to be a plumber He's a bummer, he's a bummer Every summer be a loyal plastic robot for a works very well on the flow of side two and taken as a suite, and it certainly had important political commentary at the time, but on its own it's one herky-jerky seven-minute ride that probably worked very well in 1967, but offers diminishing returns as the years go by. You might be delighted to know that Captain Beefheart helps out on vocals for that piece, and that actually might be the source of my reticence, at least in part. See, I like a couple of Beefheart records, but sometimes his voice really grates on me. And as Frank Zappa always had top-notch singers around when he wasn't singing lead, the captain really sticks out like a sore thumb for me. I see that the song will come up a lot in this big song, so uh, maybe I'll understand its place in the canon with repeated listening? I try to find how my heart could be so blinded how could I be just like the rest? This portion of the big song ends with a crowd drowning out the mothers of invention, seemingly in a nightclub. One has to wonder where they're going to pick up next. Absolutely Free got better for me with each spin, but it's the inverse of Freak Out. It's there, and it doesn't really care if you get it. And if you can't dig it, you're the square, the pariah. The interloper, the plastic vegetable. A lot of people don't bother about their friends in the vegetable kingdom. They think, uh, what can I say? What can a person like myself say to a vegetable? But the answer is simple, my friends. Just call and tell them how you feel about muffins, pumpkins, Wax paper, Caledonia Mahogany's elbows. Week number two, ZFT CD number three, Lumpy Gravy. The way I see it, Barry, this should be a very dynamite show. Some Frank Zappa fanatics took umbrage with Lumpy Gravy being the third entry into the ZFT numbering system, as it had technically originally been released after ZFT 4. We're only in it for the money. In actuality, Lumpy Gravy began as the third album, a solo Zappa album for Capitol Records. He'd just compose the tunes and conduct the orchestra, but not actually appear on the album. MGM and Verve had serious problems with this, and when they demanded that the album appeared on their label in 1967 instead, Frank Zappa turned the album, for a very straightforward and really rather pretty listen, into this. Board out 90 over with three Strongberg 97s. So what is this? I don't know. I'll try to describe it, but I'll fail. Musical pieces begin and abruptly end while people that live inside of a piano talk about cars, ponies, and pigs. 
I hear you've been having trouble with pigs and ponies. That's very distraught now. Everything in the universe is, is is made of one element, which is a nut. And hey, there's the first instance where we reference that this is all part of a big note, or rather a big song. Strange noises abound, and much of the music that drops by is atonal and dissonant. The most welcoming toe-tappers stick around for the shortest duration. Musical themes are introduced here that would take flight to great effect later on, like Oh No and Take Your Clothes Off When You Dance. But the only way to know and experience that is to listen straight through because, like I mentioned that Absolutely Free might have benefited from, this album is one big piece with only a side break for any sort of track separation or reprieve. Make no mistake, Lumpy Gravy will beat you over the head. It could possibly drive you nuts if you're forced to listen to it while not enjoying it. Repeated listens do reveal a bit of an internal heartbeat, a thought process that is data in nature, but... Okay, so have you ever been walking down the street wondering what it'd be like if someone could read your thoughts or hear them on a speaker for around 30 minutes? Every snatch of music, every disconnected half-thought, every noise that interferes with your cognitive properties? Lumpy gravy is probably what one would hear if such a thing were able to be recorded and played back. Either that, or it's just Frank editing some stuff together for fun and seeing what happens. One will either find this album to be very rewarding when sticking with it, trying to understand the sounds, or they'll see this as the most interminable half hour of audio that they'll ever sit through. If you're not ready for it, Lumpy Gravy will completely disorient you. I listened to the nearly perfect sounding ZFT issued CD on the way to a band rehearsal, and honestly, I found it hard to form sentences and hold conversations afterwards. ZFT number four, We're Only In It For The Money, released in 1968. I like this album from the get-go, but after spending a week with it as my reprieve from Lumpy Gravy, I already walked away from it feeling that this was possibly Frank's true masterpiece, or at least the first one. The Mothers of Invention are back, but Frank takes on the bulk of the lead vocal duties. It's the first time that his, I'm just telling you like it is, manner of satire becomes clear, concise, cutting, and emotionally effective in some ways. For me, at least. The target of the lyrics is still mostly those who are not freaks, but unlike the first two albums, songs can be interrupted by snatches of dialogue from the control room, or even inside of the piano again. 
If one were to put the first three ZFT releases into a blender, this would be the result. American way, how did it start? Thousands of Greeks killed in the park. American way, try and explain. Scab of a nation driven insane. Don't cry, gotta go bye-bye. Suddenly die, die. Cop, kill a creep. Pow, pow, pow. Tomorrow I get to do it. This is the example of the creation. And the day after that, and the day after that. Hi, boys and girls. I'm Jimmy Carl Black, and I'm the Indian of the group. And yes, that's all part of one song within the big song. Just one. Frank takes great pains to separate the freaks from the hippies on this record. His efforts to get someone from Kansas to drop everything and freak out have been misunderstood. Now they're just showing up to San Francisco, smoking weed, pretending to love everything, and ultimately doing nothing at all but ticking off the police. And those police? Frank doesn't spare them. They might be extinguishing the actions and lives of those damn hippies, but they still aren't right. And really, neither is your mother or father. They didn't raise you correctly. They didn't tell you to value your own monologue, your own path. If ever there was a 1968 album built to piss off parents, this is the one. From the your dad is a square ragtime of Bowtie Daddy to the the death of your child might be your fault of the song Mom and Dad, this is an album full of shoulds that instills a heavy don't listen to shoulds mindset. But there's still a few tunes that celebrate the unapologetic freaks and the brilliant Let's Make the Water Turn Black, the flop single of Lonely Little Girl, and the really ought to have been a single Take Your Clothes Off When You Dance. Who cares if hair is long or short or straight or partly gray, you know that hair ain't where it's at. There will come a time when you won't even be ashamed if you are fat. Wah, 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 wah. Even when things become dissonant and strange, like in nasal retentive calliope music or the chrome-plated megaphone of destiny, it actually fits perfectly into the album within the big song. This album was marketed to a rock and roll audience, but it's rarely traditionally rock sounding. You get waltzes, shuffles, marches, and more tempo changes than you'd expect, but it works together as a satisfying whole. For my money, this is where Zappa became Zappa. When you started knowing that he was rarely going to communicate something to you that wasn't right on in some way. He had the musical chops, he had the means to reach you with his recording contract, and he was never going to take your entertainment dollar for granted. So much entertainment would be shoved into such a small space that it could very well drive you crazy, but if you've got the ears to hear it, Frank can just improve your quality of life with records like this. Week 3 ZFT CD number five, Cruisin' with Reuben and the Jets by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, December 1968. Daddy, daddy, he's in my 
right, in some regards, this is gonna be tougher to explain than lumpy gravy. The mothers portray a fictitious doo-wop band of these sort of dog humans. And in 1984 or so, Frank Zappa went back and drastically changed almost everything about the album. Threw on lots of then-contemporary reverb, new bass and drum parts that stick out like a sore thumb, and tried to clean up what was initially a pretty gritty album. Yes, Zappa purists across the board saw this as an unacceptable incursion, much like what George Lucas did with the original Star Wars trilogy. I'm not really thrilled about it either because it's really jarring in a bad way after we're only in it for the money. However, this is the fifth entry into the big song and this is the one that the ZFT says is officially the version of the record, so let's contend with it. quality of the songs go, this is just fine. I mean, it is really the epitome of dumb tunes that you'd have heard in a teenage malt shop. Even more sub-mongoloid, really. Frank deeply loved doo-wop and all of its parallel fourths. He wanted to make some of his own. No harm. It's catchy, but it's so safe as milk that it's almost hard to pay attention to. A lot of the bass vocals are done by Frank himself, and in the early days, he had a much higher voice than he would later be known for. When he does those deep, rhythmic bass notes, they just kind of sound funny. More like he's making fun of them, each one sounding like a sarcastic, duh. But there's no piss-taking to be found. This is the real deal. Straight-up 50s-style doo-wop with 80s drums. At least until those nods to suicide creep back in in a regurgitated, I'm not satisfied. I guess that I'll just kill myself. I just don't care no more. I'm not satisfied. Everything And until Reuben is kicked out by his old lady, and later that night, and until he actually goes through with ending his own life and stuff up the cracks to the tune of Igor Stravinsky. If you decide to leave me It's all If you decide to leave me It's all I try to make you happy I give you all few records straddle the highbrow, lowbrow line better than Reuben and the Jets, and that highfalutin, smarty-pants, music nerd stuff is so well hidden that literally any schmo on the street could play this album and be able to hum along with nearly any of it. On one hand, this movement in the big song is a nice reprieve from the mile-a-minute changes, snorts, and dissonance from the last three records, but on the other, it's a pretty Johnny One-Note type of album. If you're not 
in lust with greasy love songs, with strange latter-day production decisions, you might be bored by this album very, very quickly. Another Zappa album that one could say is shockingly accessible, but one that might not interest anyone enough to make them dig further into his catalog. For any pop band, Cruisin' with Ruben and the Jets would be a pretty good album. But in Frank and the Mother's Ovoir? Am I saying that right? <laughs> Anyways, it's merely just kind of okay. If you grew up with it, you likely have a big sentimental attachment to it, as there are melodies that will really stick in your head. Also, if you grew up with it, you'd absolutely hate the ZFT CD version. The vibe is not what you grew up with, and if time is truly relative, which will be important later, then the tweaks made to the album in the 80s could be accused of only serving to make this album way, way weirder than it already was. Those overdubs are jarring if you approach this as an album from the 60s that was changed later on. If you approach it as an album that was merely finished in the years of Fast Times at Ridgemont High and Swatches, that's just fine, really. Love of my life. While opinions are divided on Frank toying with bits of the catalog this way, we'd all probably agree on one thing. If Frank Zappa truly didn't do love, or allegedly believe in the concept of love itself, he was amazing at writing love songs. Much like Frank Herbert had never left Earth, but could somehow immerse you in the world of the Dune series. Even if you don't dig this Reuben and the Jets project, you can't help but respect Frank Zappa's dedication to a bit. ZFT CD number six, Uncle Meat. Released in 1969 by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. a lot from trying to digest Uncle Meat in just one week. At this point, I'm not sure that I won't give double albums their own week, but at the same time, this album is so thick and unwelcoming that I'm really, really glad that the Reuben and the Jets album was my palate cleanser. In actuality, I really needed the simplicity of those doo-wop tunes, because every time I'd put the Reuben disc in the player, the opening strains of cheat thrills were like one gigantic hug, reassuring me that everything was alright after Uncle Meat made my head spin from trying to understand it. Uncle Meat is a fucking whopper of a record. Some serious Zappa fans have told me that this is basically the pinnacle of his career, the one to beat, the album that everything else in his catalog would pale in comparison to. I disagree wholeheartedly. It isn't bad. Well, Zappa didn't do bad. But it is just one huge clusterfuck. 
Here's a few things that you should know about it. Uncle Meat was to be the soundtrack to a never-produced film of the same name. Also, this album, along with ZFT 3 through 5, were parts of a project called No Commercial Potential. And this is the last album that any semblance of the quote-unquote original mothers would have worked on together. Uncle Meat is what you would get if all of the ideas in ZFT CDs 3 through 5 were stretched to the fullest realization possible, which is not always the most pleasant thing. The main theme is definitely one of the more challenging yet rewarding bits of early Zappa genius. At first it won't make any sense, but with enough repeated listening, it becomes a stone harpsichord and vibraphone-driven classic, and that's how a lot of this album rolls. That last bit I played you some of, Nine Types of Industrial Pollution? It seems like six minutes of a disjointed wank fest, and somewhere around the tenth listen, the mood of the piece almost becomes... comforting? And those voices that interrupt the flow of music, they're back too. Mostly relegated to their own tracks, though. Susie Cream Cheese? She's a lady that keeps showing up as a character in these early albums, but ultimately doesn't seem to make much sense to me, yet drops by to tell you about her failures with beatniks, groupies, and surfers. She reassures you that she's come home and sometimes appears to talk about the mothers getting booed off stage and how they'd ball everyone in Laurel Canyon. Hello, teenage America. My name is Susie Cream Cheese. <coughs> Jimmy Carl Black argues with Frank about being broke. Where does it come from? We worked one gig this month. And now, so what do we get? $200 for this gig up here, if we're lucky? If we're lucky, we'll get $200. And it'll be two weeks before we get it, probably. Ian Underwood talks about the woes of being the straight member of the group. But before I can go on with that, we have to ask ourselves, what was the Uncle Meat movie about? The liner notes of this CD version, try to explain it. It's pretty hard to wrap your head around, and I have my sincere doubts about this being the true intention of the film. Many people have lamented that 40 minutes of bonus material that appears on the second disc being placed between what were initially sides three and four of the original album. Well, this bonus material is mostly snatches of dialogue from the behind-the-scenes aspects of making this unfinished film. I've never once seen anyone say anything positive about this decision. However, that bonus material was the missing piece for me. I got Uncle Meat. I got a few stray albums that came after this. Frank, but you're just making things out of it, Don. Put it in your mouth, in your eyes, Frank. You're getting hot, come on. The last that I don't like this page, it's not so funny. I don't like this page. It's not so funny. Oh, this gets me hot. Oh, this gets me hot. Well, get hot. I can't get hot over this. Get hot over the hamburger. I can't get it. You're getting hot. Oh, am I hot over this hamburger? Think of my hot. Oh, sure. Uncle Meat initially had a plot, and it would have been nearly impossible for the mothers to have pulled it off at that time without cutting corners and making the most unwatchable, low-budget feature this side of Toy Piano by the Frogs. I have a sneaking suspicion that the plot itself was a red herring, and that the script itself was there so that Frank would have a reason to shoot what 
he really seemed to want to capture, which was trying to make a movie with the mothers of invention and a lady named Phyllis. What he actually captured, and this is evidenced by the aforementioned dialogue and all of the surrounding highly complicated movie, is as follows. Frank wanted to tell people what to do so he could realize his artistic visions, but he also wanted to make music that was nigh on impossible to play. The mothers of invention themselves were the stumbling blocks. I haven't seen the movie that's purported to be Uncle Meat, but I have it on good authority that it's basically truly just a making of. And on these two discs, you have a bunch of dense compositions, a band that just wanted to play whatever will get them paid, and Frank trying to stay afloat with minimal arguments. This is the beginning of Frank Zappa deciding that the actions of anyone in closest physical proximity to him could, in effect, become their own compositions. As long as Frank recognized the documentation as art, it was now a composition. By pressing the record button and responding in any way, conversations could become their own type of composition. And that whole one big song theory? Well, it's still functional because a song alluded to in the bonus dialogue, which I'm gonna butcher the title of, but I think it's Tango Namincia Tanta, and presumably a part of the intended Uncle Meat film wasn't even completed until the 80s. So this means that the original Uncle Meat album itself, much like Ruben and the Jets before it, was merely a prototype. An unfinished album that hadn't become what it was. A documentation of the last days of the mothers of invention in their semi-original incarnation, and the beginning of who Frank Zappa was truly going to be as a composer. It's complicated, but it took a few listens to those universally reviled penalty tracks for me to understand it. Uncle Meat was supposed to be a lot of stuff, but with no further work possible, we have no choice but to accept it for what it actually is and the state that Frank last gave it to us in. The first true recording as a perpetual diary entry into Zappa's catalog. Wowie zowie. One month ago, I heard the Mothers of Invention at the theater. I heard them on two occasions, and on the second occasion, I went up to Jim Black and I said, I like your music, and I'd like to come down and play with you. Beyond that, there's... A couple of just straight-up cool and slightly more traditional early Frank songs, especially The Air and Mr. Green Jeans. The former is another cool doo-wop tune, but with slightly more fitting Frank-type lyrics, while the latter is a logical and more literal extension of the themes in Call Any Vegetable. Eat a bunch of these 
Uncle Meat is just cool. It's also so dense that a mere week spent studying it probably isn't nearly enough. And that's a tough proposition because you can't just casually listen to this record. You have to kind of get inside of it, live in it for a while, and wait for the themes to appear. It feels like the kind of album that you either have to disappear into for a while or you simply won't pull it off the shelf very often. Week number four, ZFT CD number seven, Mother Mania, released in 1969. It can't happen here. It can't happen here. I'm telling you, my dear, that it can happen here. Because I've been checking it out. During the week where I was checking out Mother Mania, I wasn't feeling so hot. But I persevered, and here's where I ended up. Mother Mania is a compilation that Zappa curated as a contractual obligation for his label. I have a feeling that he didn't actually want to put this thing together, but I don't have any evidence to support that notion. The mothers didn't make singles or hits, so imagining that the best bits, quote-unquote, could be assembled as a marketable product isn't really a logical thing. Then again, I can imagine having read about Zappa in 1969, not knowing what album to get, and hoping that a compilation would show me what this wacky music was all about. Whereas most folks would try to pick their most accessible recordings for a best of, Frank seemed to go in a very middle-of-the-road direction. It plays like a highlight reel, a demo tape. Like, here's a little bit of all that these mothers do, you know? Kicking off with brown shoes don't make it isn't exactly the way to hold someone's hand and guide them into the world of Frank's early music. However, having heard the composition a number of times now, I'm starting to appreciate it a bit more. I can pick up on the recurring themes, hum sections to myself, but still ultimately not have any clue what this is, what it's trying to communicate or why it exists at all. The piece has been called a two-hour musical condensed into seven minutes, and that's how it plays. I also can't say that the two-hour musical might not have been more effective. Themes don't stick around long enough to make a true impression for my ears, but I'm starting to enjoy it more. There are very, or rather relatively, straightforward pieces strewn throughout, like what you just heard, a bit of Mother People, it shows up in an unedited form, with its shut your fucking mouth about the length of my hair verse completely intact, where it was a record company decision to remove it before this compilation. Tracks from Freak Out, like You're Probably Wondering Why I'm Here and Hungry Freak's Daddy, show up and feel a little bit more direct for a new listener. And also of note is an edited version of the Call Any Vegetable Suite, which greatly heightens the impact of the previously stretched out and scattered version that had appeared on Absolutely Free. 
You also get another crack at Duke of Prunes from the same album, which is a wonderfully juxtaposed piece. Dense and complex music married to literally some of the dumbest lyrics ever penned by anyone with any level of intellect. I bite your neck, the cheese I have for you, my dear, is real and very new. lyrics, they're aware of how idiotic they are, and that's why they work so well here. It serves to prove that Frank wanted music to come first, and that the lyrics were simply mandatory to have a wider audience relate to them. Duke of Prunes is a fine piece that didn't need lyrics, and the song seems to become a commentary on itself. Rather bewilderingly, though, you also get a brand new edit of the very strange It Can't Happen Here, which makes it a little bit more palatable and a slightly more upfront mix of America Drinks and Goes Home from Absolutely Free as well. As I do know of at least one person that heard Mother Mania and fell down the Zappa rabbit hole, I can't say that this was not an effective introduction. And while I can't really recommend it as any sort of starting point, I also don't believe that I would be any better at making an early mother's compilation. They need much more than the allotted 40 or so minutes, and at that point, well, why not just get a couple of their albums? It works, and it also doesn't. Now, as far as its relation to the big note, the big song notion, it almost serves as a quick reprisal of earlier themes before a very, very different turn was taken. The ZFT, Zappa Family Trust, considers this to be an essential piece in the chronology, and I've taken it seriously as such, but I also don't see a need for it unless it exists in the numbering system to signify the end of Act One. ZFT CD number 8, Hot Rats, released by Frank Zappa in October of Money, ZFT CD number four, was the first bona fide get out of the way and duck classic album in Frank's catalog. Hot Rats is not only the second, but possibly even a better standalone record. It's a type of album that you can live inside of for a little while, yet not really feel the need to explore the rest of the catalog. But is it? While Ian Underwood sticks around, this is not a Mothers of Invention album. And while the name Frank Zappa is emblazoned on the cover, so is Hot Rats. Considering that a few shows would take place under the name Frank Zappa's Hot Rats, one wouldn't be incorrect in seeing this album as a side project by a wholly different band. 
Another important note to make is that up until this point, the things that appeared on Zappa's records were quote-unquote compositions. You followed the dots on the paper and that was that. And that's not how these tunes work. Many of the musicians involved, including but not limited to the astounding violinist Sugarcane Harris and bass genius Max Bennett, were given general chord charts, but were also given quite a bit of free reign to compose their own bits and improvise in the moment. The song that you heard a bit of just a second ago, Peaches and Regalia, is very much the exception to that rule on Hot Rats. This tightly orchestrated bit has rightfully gone on to be one of Frank's signature compositions, and doesn't sound dissimilar to the theme music to an imaginary European game show. Instantly memorable, and one of those works that brought out the very best in every musician involved. A true classic wherein if one single note were to be changed, the song would cease to be correct. This song is dependent on the black dots on that page. There is no personality of a player that can improve upon the dots themselves. No improvisation that'll make it better. It's really the epitome of why Frank is above all else a composer. If any musician tackles the piece and does exactly what the page says to do, they'll get it right. Elsewhere, the musicianship is tight and loose at the same time in all of the right ways. Willie the Pimp does have a Captain Beefheart vocal, but he's just simply the right guy to handle those greasy lyrics. Besides that, crushingly heavy riffs ground this nine-minute epic, and the improvisations that make it come to life. Standing on the porch of the Lido Hotel, bruising in the It's another bit of that lightning-in-a-bottle perfection that was Zappa's calling card, and also one of the first appearances of Frank's hotshot, composing-in-the-moment guitar solos. Clearly, Frank had to be a pretty good guitarist to pull off the mother's compositions, but this is the album where that prowess really shines for the first time. Really shines. The other four tracks are equally as good as each other, but still a bit of a come-down after the one-two opening punch of Peaches and Willie the Pimp. Little Umbrellas has a mixture of a nightclub vibe mixed with some eastern modes, and at three minutes, the track almost doesn't offer enough. You know that more could exist, and that extra things could have been done with the mood, but it sadly only sticks around for just over three minutes. Mr. Green Jeans is a long instrumental variation on a track that had just appeared on Uncle Meat, and it works well as an extension. One doesn't work as well if you hadn't heard the other, and it's these types of successful stabs at conceptual continuity that make the ongoing big note so rewarding for the folks that try to take in the big song itself. Hot Rats 
is a barrage of genius playing. No one is ever overplaying, or possibly they're always overplaying, leading to a healthy competition that makes the album what it is. It's a 95% instrumental work, but as those few lyrics are about selling sex, they're still just enough to piss off most parents. There are likely few other albums like Hot Rats and Frank's catalog, and this is the pivotal moment where Frank Zappa becomes so much more than just one of the mothers, which might have been the public persona at the time, but rather the visionary that even his detractors would have to respect the abilities of. It's not easy listening, but it might be the easiest album I've found so far to just walk into Frank's world and see if it's a place that you want to inhabit. The one flaw? It follows Mother Mania in the ZFT CD chronology. If it would have been the first thing I'd heard after King Kong on Uncle Meat, the flow would have been impeccable. Accepting it for what it is, it's one hell of a way to kick off a new phase in Frank's career, and much like Freak Out and We're Only In It For The Money, if his career had somehow stopped right after the release of this album, we'd still be dissecting it and trying to understand and appraise his work. Thankfully, there's still much more to come, and records of this quality make me really excited to continue listening to this big, big song. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Week number five, ZFT CD, number nine. Burnt Weenie Sandwich by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, originally released in February of 1970. Okay, so the quote-unquote original mothers are kaput, but the world at large probably didn't know that. Fans of records that are not normal seemingly wanted as much mother's material as they could get their hands on, and Frank was ready to supply. I heard tales that he wanted to do a 10 or so LP set of that band's material that hadn't been committed to wax, and that Burnt Weenie Sandwich and the next album, Weasels Rip My Flesh, were born of that ill-fated project. That's my understanding, and if I'm wrong, I'm sure that plenty of Zappa freaks will be ready to correct me, especially since I don't really enjoy these albums very much. Now, don't shoot the messenger. It's just me that doesn't really enjoy it all that much. See, Burnt Weenie Sandwich is a hodgepodge of various mother's sundries that don't seem to fit together in the least. 
The album opens with a snappy rhythm and blues track called WPLJ that wouldn't have been out of place on Cruisin' with Ruben and the Jets, and it closes with another doo-wop-styled track called Valerie. While the former is the superior tune by a country mile, they're both more refined and punchier tracks than anything that actually appeared on the Ruben album. And the first time that anybody tries to dive into Burnt Weenie Sandwich, those songs will likely be your standouts. And in between, there's little classical doodles like Igor's Boogie and Abby C, as well as bigger instrumental compositions like Holiday in Berlin Full Blown and The Little House I Used to Live In. Listens did bring out some pretty tasty sections of these tunes, but not a lot of these bits would stick with me when I was done listening to the album. I'd be pleased when a few groovy bars would come in, and I'd be a bit turned off when those riffs and honks wouldn't repeat and we'd be off on another tangent before I had time to dig in. The 20-minute little house that I used to live in that you just heard a bit of seems to be a real fan favorite based on some of my Zappa reading, and not for nothing, with some astounding violin work by Sugarcane Harris, but Holiday in Berlin full-blown has the coolest vibe of any of these exploratory jams. problem with Burnt Weenie Sandwich, to my ears, is that as soon as the disc is over, I could barely tell you almost anything about it. It's just not that memorable for me. Now, some of the instrumental Zappa stuff can get pretty atonal at times, but in Overture to a Holiday in Berlin, someone is uncharacteristically out of tune, and it's hideously distracting. Could have been built into the track, but as the line is blurred between studio and live creations on this album, as it would continue to be for the bulk of the Frank Zappa output, one has to wonder how a tireless perfectionist like Frank would let something like that slide. If it was intentionally annoying, the job is done with aplomb. jump the gun a bit by claiming that I don't particularly enjoy Burnt Weenie Sandwich. It's really that I don't feel moved by it. It doesn't flow terribly well and there's no overarching mood. It just plays like an exceptionally slipshod clip show of some things Frank's old band could do. I'm sure that if I were to spend months with this album, not being sure when I'd get my next Frank fix, I'd probably find myself neck deep in reasons to love the album. I've heard it plenty of times over the years, but this week was the first time that I really tried to immerse myself in it. I like it more than I used to, but it's a terribly disconnected listen, especially coming right off the heels of Hot Rats. The big song kind of goes off the rails. Now the ZFT CD sounds very nice. I'd read in a book called Zaftig, the Zappa Family Trust Issues Guide by Edward Camara that this was one of the most difficult titles to restore for that digital reissue campaign that I've been basing all my reviews on. 
If I hadn't read that, I'd have never known. The Sonics are very present and pleasant. If some of the melodies and tones aren't. ZFT CD number 10, Weasels Ripped My Flesh. Released in August 1970 by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. just agree up front that this is possibly Zappa's greatest album cover? What an amazing and iconic image. If it were possible to sum up the entirety of Frank's sense of humor in one piece, that illustration might be it. Guy shaving with a weasel ripping his face off. I mean, what an illustration. If Burnt Weenie Sandwich has a gooey yet impenetrable center, Weasel's Rip My Flesh seems to set out to alienate you from that very first track. Did you get any on ya? What starts as a hypnotic and simple riff devolves into a minimalist version of chaos. A honk here, a squeak there, all with no real rhyme or reasons. Afterwards, you settle into the much more welcoming Directly From My Heart To You, which is a somewhat plodding blues ballad but is again saved from total doldrums by the violin of Sugarcane Harris. As this was another piecemeal mother's affair, it also has a pretty unsteady flow. It's the perfect movement to follow Burnt Weenie Sandwich in that regard, and I'm left to imagine that the albums weren't simply released as a double album because they would seem slightly more aimless together somehow. And folks, the first two-thirds of this album are so aimless that it borders on complete annoyance if you don't have a healthy love of the avant-garde. Points like Frank quietly explaining the time signatures of the seemingly impossible to replicate Toads of the Short Forest, as well as the abrupt and inexplicable ending to Get a Little, leaving an audibly confused audience, become highlights because there seems to at least be a bit of direction. One might say, aha, that song ended because they did not want to play it any longer, or something of that nature. And that may seem like a silly thing to notice, but a mood of, I have no idea what this band is going for, permeates this disc for me. While possibly being the most bewildering Frank Zappa album I've encountered thus far on this little journey, never quite reaching an internal heartbeat like the misdirected chaos of Lumpy Gravy, this does have some very high highs. Said peaks are squashed together at the end, but it ends on such a great note that it certainly whets your appetite for what's to come. There's a groovy little rock song called My Guitar Wants to Kill Your Mama, with some wonderfully understated horns that probably sounded really great on underground FM radio playlists of the time. My guitar wants to kill your mama. 
Gravy's Oh No is fleshed out into a full song with lyrics, becoming sort of an anti-all-you-need-is-love. Important because where most vocal groups would sing about love constantly, Frank seemed to bend over backwards to explain that love was the enemy. Or at least the cheapness of the word being tossed around casually, I'm, I'm not sure. He says in his autobiography, The Real Frank Zappa Book, that he fell in love with his second wife, Gail but also spends so much lyrical energy telling you that heart feelings are something that his narrators have no time for. It's a bit convoluted, and possibly further exploration of the catalog will make it a bit clearer. Oh no, I don't believe it. You say that you think you know the meaning of love. The Orange County Lumber Truck is the finest instrumental on this album to these ears, the wind instruments really seem to own this album, and this track is no exception. It's mostly a showcase for some great wind melodies until it breaks down into sort of a proto-krautrock boogie, and then the title track is just one long, sustained note before Frank bids an audience goodnight. We can look back on record reviews, and we have the ability to ask people that have lived with this record since 1970 and whatnot to see what the reactions were, but I'd really like to read the diary entry of someone that bought Weasel's Ripped My Flesh when it was new and had to make sense of it without context. Imagine that every time you see Frank Zappa on TV, they're talking about his wild antics, his scatological humor, his lust for groupies, and then you hear this album full of squonks tempo changes, and a horn section to die for. Was this one of those albums that people played over and over to unlock the mysteries? Or did people feel like they paid good money for it so they were going to make themselves like a dag nebbit? Because I'll tell you, those last four tracks leave a really good taste in my mouth, but the first few songs were so difficult that I might not have stuck with this album if I weren't doing this project. Looking at each CD as a movement in a big song has been very helpful. If this album were just one big song called Weasels Ripped My Flesh, I just think it was a very weird and long song. Something about having track breaks makes me look at the individual bits as songs, and that doesn't really describe what's going on. Sometimes it's a fragment. Other times it could be just a sound check that happened to be recorded, but it's only rarely a definable song with a start and finish that can be replicated by other musicians. This is not a Zappa album I'd recommend to a newcomer, but I suppose that if one were to hear it and not be immediately turned off, there's a good chance that they might really like Frank. Some Zappa enthusiasts would argue that such a diverse and vast body of work, everyone can be a fan of the work, they merely haven't heard the right album. I can say, based on my own personal sensibilities, if Weasel's Rip My Flesh was the first Frank Zappa album I'd been exposed to, the piece you're listening to right now simply wouldn't exist. Good night, boys and girls. Thank you for coming to our concert.
Week number six, ZFT CD number 11, Chunga's Revenge, released in October of 1970 by Frank Zappa. <laughs> This week's Zappa albums, I'm absolutely convinced that I'm doing the right thing in choosing to look at each individual record as a movement in the big song, or rather to see each collection of tracks as their own song within the bigger piece. I may have had my doubts before, but Chunga's Revenge makes a great case. If you take the album apart and look at it pound for pound, it may not seem like it adds up to much. And truthfully, before taking on this project, I didn't reach for this album all that often when just listening to Frank for pleasure. This is a transitional movement in every sense of the word. This release highlights some remnants of where we've been. For example, the Nancy and Mary music is a hefty avant-garde piece that would have been right at home on Burnt Weenie Sandwich or Weasel's Rip My Flesh, but also might have a bit of King Kong in the melodic portions. The Nancy and Mary music seems to be a collection of solos with special attention given to percussion and vocal scatting, including that of the audience that the piece was performed in front of. Meanwhile, 20 Small Cigars is one of the truly jazziest composition in Frank's Ovoir as of yet, and seems to be an actual outtake from Hot Rats. Jamming on a bunch of woodblocks bit known as the clap certainly recalls the more freeform moments towards the end of Freakout, and the obligatory nods to 50s R&B and doo-wop abound in Would You Go All The Way and Charlena. Remember Freddie and her, the night you went to her show. On paper, it might seem like Chunga's Revenge doesn't do anything that you can't hear improved upon in other parts of Frank's discography. I might have a hard time arguing with that, but to get from Weasel's Rip My Flesh to the live album that follows this one, it's absolutely essential. It'd be like skipping over electioneering on OK Computer. It might not be everyone's favorite, but it's a huge piece of the flow. The things that Chunga's Revenge does introduce are of huge importance. For one, there are possibly more traditionally structured songs on this platter than we've had since we're only in it for the money but it also slowly eases you into two controversial aspects of Frank's output. The first is the acquisition of Flo and Eddie as the new lead vocalist for Frank's band, and the second is a fixation on groupies and the road. I'll certainly delve further into the second one while talking about upcoming albums, but for now let's talk about the implications of the former. Flo and Eddie are Mark Bowman and Howard Kalin, formerly of the rock band The Turtles. A fabulous pop band in their own right, the pairing of these ex-Turtles into Zappa's live band was a move that absolutely no one outside of Frank's inner circle could have ever seen coming, and it hardly makes sense to tell you right now. 
While Frank Zappa's face was certainly more recognizable to the general public, it's impossible to argue that the Turtles simply had more fame and definable musical success at the time. They had singles on the scale of Happy Together and Eleanor, and pretty much everyone with ears and a love of melody can still hum them for you to this day. Meanwhile, Frank Zappa was mostly known as an eccentric guy from a band called the Mothers of Invention, and those same Turtles fans probably knew that name in passing, but more than likely just knew them from the aspects that the media fixated on, but couldn't have told you a single thing about Zappa's actual music. It helps to remember that FM radio was still in its infancy, and if any of this music was being played in America, it was by relatively underground DJs and very little would find its way into heavy rotation until a few years into his career, at least a few more years, if he had a radio hit. It was in a specific region at best, and it was probably a fluke. Interestingly though, Chunga's Revenge is billed to Frank Zappa as a solo artist, so to average record buyers, this might have been seen as the follow-up to Hot Rats and Lumpy Gravy. The introduction of Flo and Eddie's harmonies must have seemed like a positively sell-out type of move to anyone that was hip enough to pick this album up in 1970. It seems that this is when a few purists of the early material jump off of the proverbial ship, and that's probably a factor. But another very realistic factor is that when the ex-Turtles were ushered in, the political and sociological commentary seemed to take a back seat to what these vocalists were bringing in. While Frank takes the lead vocals on Road Ladies, which is about precisely what the title suggests, there's always a vibe of, please just give in and fuck me, in nearly every vocal track. And trust me when I tell you that this album only eases you into this notion. It'd become much more open in the ensuing years and releases. I think that some folks blamed the new singers, but when the facts are faced, very little happened that Frank Zappa didn't direct and approve. For my money, the absolute highlights of this album are the instrumental title tracks Late Night Gloomy Vibe and Tell Me You Love Me. <laughs> simple, but it truly embodies all that would be FM radio rock in the 1970s. A distorted and heavy guitar lick, pounding drums, and dumb lyrics that are shouted at you, which are usually about sex, albeit thinly veiled. If someone wanted to know what rock and roll in the 1970s was all about, you could arguably play them this one single track and be done with the conversation. On its own, the song isn't actually all that fantastic, but the way it cuts through the bullshit while bringing forth a ton of its own bullshit is just astounding. I kind of hope that this snuck its way into some of those FM playlists. The mind boggles that the tune isn't as big as every ZZ Top song you've ever heard. Finally, the sound quality on this album has always been a little bit murky, but the newer ZFT CD version is probably the most open-sounding version we'll ever hear. My old LP seemed a little muffled and claustrophobic, but the Sonics had never been more enjoyable than on this version. Big thumbs up in the presentation department. And it's the perfect lead-in to the next record.
CD number 12, Fillmore East, June 1971, released in August of 1971 by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. This is the moment where you've got to decide if you're in or out with Frank Zappa. Will you go all the way? Can you hang with the fact that while this album is billed to the mothers, there's not a single musician from the days of Freak Out in the band besides Frank himself? Great! You're halfway there. Well, not through the catalog, but if you can hang with the presentation of this honest-to-goodness live album and the contents within, you're cut out for the long haul with Frank. Kicking off with a nice little compact rendition of The Little House I Used to Live In that really accentuates the strengths of the very long rendition originally found on Burnt Weenie Sandwich, it does a good job of easing you into this album, which is ultimately an archive of what most fans know as the groupie routine. That routine is introduced with The Mud Shark, a story told by Frank about some rock and roll musicians that place some sea creatures in, um uncommon orifices that happen to belong to a groupie? The origins of the mud shark are as follows. There's a motel in Seattle, Washington called the Edgewater Inn. The Edgewater Inn is built out on a pier. So that means that when you look out your window, you don't see any dirt. Got a bay or something out in your backyard. Now hang on, before we go any further, we're clear on what a groupie is, right? A groupie, in Frank's very specific portrayal, is a person that very much looks up to a musical artist or a band and is very willing to give those musicians whatever they might need or desire on the road. Now it's true that some of them would help out by sewing and repairing damaged stage clothes or possibly even offering the troubadours a nice home-cooked meal. But let's not beat around the bush. When Frank talks about them, he's talking about the pursuit of sexual activities by both the musician and the muse. Now, did it seem condescending that I just explained the groupie life to you, dear listener? I did not intend to do so. Rather, I wanted to illustrate that there was a time that this needed to be explained. American Bandstand certainly wasn't talking about this. AM radio DJs weren't alluding to it. Rolling Stone might have hinted at it, but Frank Zappa was definitely one of the first to place the groupie squarely as the subject of art. And he does it in a manner that is definitely rooted in some classic misogyny. What Frank importantly also does is tell the truth. These situations took place often in the rock and roll world in 1971, and yes, these men spoke of the usually female groupies as objects. Meanwhile, some of these groupies would very much prefer their suitor to possess a very, very large penis, as referenced in the track Buona Dick, which requires at least a small part of objectification on their part as well. And if the stick is a monster, My God, Madge, you voluptuous New York City slit. 
So the routine itself. <laughs> Musicians are negotiating with groupies about sexual activities. The groupies, portrayed by Flo and Eddie, who are also doubling as the musicians confusingly, will not agree to this unless the man is a musician with a single in the charts and a massive penis. The road ladies also take umbrage at being referred to as groupies, insisting that the musicians that they know are merely their friends. Flo and Eddie aren't having much luck until they remember that they once were in the Turtles, so they bust into Happy together and everyone is presumably content and consenting. While it took me that small amount of time to explain all that to you, Frank's first live album dedicates 30 full minutes of its running time to exploring every possible avenue of such a conversation. Since much of it seems a little off the cuff, it's easy to assume that this is what Flo and Eddie choose to entertain the crowd with upon entry into the mothers, but remember, Frank is the director. They might be doing some improv when they present the ideas, but the ideas wouldn't fly unless Frank had either written it, suggested it, or approved it in the first place. Should you direct your ire at Frank for the concepts portrayed in the words in this performance? Well, that's dicey. Again, these are based on real situations that aren't hard to verify, and in that way, the groupie routine is an anthropological study that just happens to have some music in the background. This particular routine isn't really in line with my own personal tastes or beliefs or views, but from years of reading rock and roll history, I know that these situations often went down this way, and while the band is exaggerating a bit for comedic effect, it's pretty right on as far as accuracy. Getting angry with the album won't help because these scenarios already took place and ultimately, all of the parties, in this album at least, were consenting, including the listener that puts this album on and decides not to turn it off. It's not that Fillmore East, June 1971 is really all that bad or offensive, but rather, it's just kind of annoying. It takes forever to get to its point. And especially with musical heights like the killer guitar solo in the newly revamped Willie the Pimp, the stunning rendition of Peaches and Regalia heard in the encore, in which Flo and Eddie sing some of the more memorable horn parts. It's really the majestic closer, Tears Began to Fall, which is such a memorable and uncharacteristically accessible pastiche of early rock and roll motifs that I'd been convinced that the track was actually a cover song for many, many years. It was only upon reappraising this album in ZFT-approved listening order and checking out the liner notes that I realized this was just one amazingly straightforward tune. Some vocal overdubs are readily apparent on that particular song, but not in an offensive way. It helps to look at the show itself as a recording of the basic tracks, but since they've got to finish it in the studio, why not add some other stuff while you're in there? And if you have a knack for getting angry at reportedly live albums that have a ton of overdubs, Zappa's just going to infuriate you. But he also turned it into its own art form, which will be discussed much later on because, wow, I still have a lot of music to get through. 
The material on this album can be considered difficult for completely different reasons than one might be challenged by, say, Lumpy Gravy. How rewarding any repeated listings will be in comparison to the aforementioned piece will be in the ear of the beholder, but if you're turned off to the graphic sexuality and somewhat chauvinistic outlook on this album, there's a good chance that you might want to skip around to the Zappa albums full of songs that don't contain any words. There's plenty of those. The words on this record might be tough, but he's not exactly lying when he describes the musician groupie interactions. Besides, that groupie routine is bookended by some pretty killer music, so you're bound to find something enjoyable here. While Fillmore East, June 1971, is considered in some circles to contain less than stellar audio quality, it's really just in comparison to the quality of most other Zappa records. Sure, it's a little tinny, and the vocals sometimes come with a little bit of top-end distortion, but it's a perfectly acceptable audio document of a rock concert in 1971, because these public address systems weren't always up to snuff around this period. The ZFT CD issue blows my beat-up LP out of the water hands down. This is not the place to jump in, but it's a pretty necessary stepping stone if you plan to swim around in Zappa's catalog for a while. That's going to do it for this week's discography. I'll be back next week, starting with 200 Motels. Before I go, I want to say thank you very much for listening. There's so much out there vying for your entertainment attention, and you chose to hang out with us here on Discography. I, Mark with a C, I can't thank you enough. And if you're curious as to what else I do, well, I make up songs, I put out records. You can check those out at markwithac.bandcamp.com. If you'd like to support what I do, um, pick up a record might be up your alley or you can always fund my future creations at patreon.com slash mark with a c i give a lot of stuff in return if you want to follow me on social media you can do so at facebook.com slash mark with a c music you can look me up on twitter at mark fi that's m-a-r-c-f-i as in there's hi-fi lo-fi mid-fi and mark fi if you want to find me on Instagram, I'm Mark with A. That's M-A-R-C-W-I-T-H-A. If you want to follow me on Tumblr, I am Mark with a C at Tumblr.com. No, seriously, that's how you type it. I am Mark with a C dot Tumblr dot com. All of it. I'd like to remind you that we thrive on your feedback as well as you rating and reviewing this show on whatever platform you stumbled upon it with. This really matters. This helps more people find out about us. And you wouldn't want us to die in obscurity because you didn't take a moment out to rate. And hey, five-star ratings, they're always welcome because, man, you rate something one star one time, oh my god, it's just over for them. But let's say you can't support monetarily and you don't really do anything with social media and you don't want to follow me and you don't want to stay tuned to Consequence of Sound, but you had a good time here. Hey, tell a friend all about us. Consider leaving a review on iTunes. I mean, I don't know how you got here without having access to those things, so I'd imagine the power is in your hands. And of course, I want to say a special thank you to Frank Zappa for making so much amazing, 
astounding work to comb through with this big song. Please consider picking up any Zappa music that you've heard about today that you find interesting. It's rewarding, and it only gets more rewarding over time. Our theme is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Abriskie, and a lot of our bed music is by Chris Abriskie himself. Check him out. I've been Mark with a C. This has been Discography. I'll see you next time, my friends. Consequence Podcast Network.